ma'am, first of all, pronouns are not bullets. And let's be clear, we're not doing anything about those. We got to address the suburban women problem because it's real. Welcome to the Suburban Women Problem, a podcast from Red, Wine, and Blue. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jasmine Clark. I'm Amanda Weinstein. I'm Rachel Denman. And you're listening to the Suburban Women Problem. This year alone, over 450 bills have been introduced to block trans people from receiving basic health care, education, and the right to publicly exist. One far-right speaker at CPAC last week even said that transgenderism must be eradicated. (sighs) Those bills not only harm individual trans people, they're also an attack on our freedom and our democracy. Just like with reproductive rights, it all comes down to extremist politicians inserting themselves into a conversation that should be between a person and their doctor. So this week, we'll be joined by Elliot Kozich, who can speak to both of those issues as the senior communications strategist for NARAL Pro-Choice America and a person who's trans and non-binary. And after that, I'll get the chance to talk to Danica Rome, the first openly transgender person to serve as a state representative. But before we get to all that, how are you guys? And I'm so sad that I had to miss you all last week. Oh, Jasmine, you've been busy. I feel like you, you should start with, like, tell us what you've been up to. Man, so on Monday, uh, which is when we normally record, we also had Crossover Day at the Georgia State Capitol. And so Crossover Day is basically the deadline for a bill to pass out of at least one chamber or the other chamber. And so we started our day very early. Some people had committee meetings as early as 7.30 a.m., And we voted on the last bill at 1140 p.m. So a very, very, very long day, lots of bills. And actually, it's pretty on target for what we're talking about this week, because one of the bills that passed here in Georgia was SB 140. And that bill would basically ban gender affirming care um, that parents might seek for their children. And so that bill did unfortunately pass. And so we'll probably um, see it in, on the House side pretty, really soon. SB means it was a Senate bill. I'm on the House side. So it has crossed over to the House. I am hoping that I never see it. But if I do, I'm ready to fight it because it's just right along the lines of everything else we've been seeing with extremists trying to insert themselves into people's lives while also in the same time yelling about freedom. Yeah. They don't trust doctors. They don't trust people to make decisions for their children that they think mm-hmm. will help them. And again, there's a doctor involved in this process. Doctors go through a lot of schooling. A lot. I'm not saying they're always right 100% of the time, but goodness, let them do their job and stop trying to tell doctors what they can and can't do when you literally have no idea what you're talking about. It's just really, it really grates on my nerves. Well, as it should, it should for all of us. I mean, I think when there are these victories of infringing on people's rights of diminishing physicians role in healthcare, then it becomes normal for people to hear that medical care and the rights that we have is being legislated. And our rights as parents, no one's an expert on your kids like you are. Like, Yes, doctors are important, but like even we all know and we've all had experiences where whether it's like with sleep issues, like it was with my kids, right? My experiences were very different than other people. And and I had a doctor at the time who took me as an expert at my kid's sleep, knowing that she was a doctor, like she listened very hard, like you are the expert on your kid and let's let you be the expert on your kid. And we have so many laws not letting people be the expert on their kids. And it just frustrates me like, The trans community is about 1% of the population-ish, right? So they're creating so many bills, like the number of bills that they're creating, targeting trans people, far over 1%. But if you ask people, there are certain polls where some people think trans people are about 20% of the population because 
in part of these bills and how much they hear about it from legislator and how much misinformation that there is. There's just such a huge disconnect. But meanwhile, we have really big issues. What happened to the learning loss from the pandemic everyone is talking about? What about our big economic issues, like when we're still dealing with labor shortages? And all they seem to come up with are, oh, how about we get rid of child labor laws? Because child labor laws are a way to fix the learning loss from the pandemic. I don't think so. Um, but really, if you ask them, they're like, well, maybe this is a way to fix you know, our labor shortages, which what they're really saying is we're trying to help companies not have to raise their wages to deal with that labor shortage. Oh my gosh. What we really have is a wage shortage, right. not a labor shortage. Exactly. And the way that they're trying to have companies avoid actually raising their wages is by, well, how about child labor? So we just had a bill in Ohio pass. And I know Arkansas has done the same thing. Georgia has a bill moving as well. Oh, so I was really surprised. We had no opposition testimony. And I mean, none. There wasn't doctors coming in to talk about how important sleep is for children. There weren't educators in there talking about, about how much homework we require of eighth graders. We're talking about eighth graders working till nine, waking up at 6 a.m. the next day. The long-term consequences that we know are associated with less likely to graduate high school, less likely to go to college, more likely to be unemployed, is just simply not worth it. If I recall correctly, the Biden administration was pointing out that there were like slaughterhouses in places that had these children working, cleaning, mm-hmm. using caustic chemicals yes. and cleaning razor sharp machines and things like that. Children are also associated with more workplace incidents, like as a like they're more likely, right? Because they're kids, right? They yeah. don't have they're children. <laughs> they're kids. <laughs> Yeah, like we're not around here, like letting the kids play with bleach and sharp objects. <sighs> but apparently uh, these legislators think that that's a good idea. Oh, and let's let them do it in the middle of the night because <sighs> apparently we should not have any. And it's like, I don't understand how we are reversing, like going in reverse. It was not on my bingo card. <laughs> I feel like all these people that are passing these laws now and trying to do these things right now, the reality is for them, this stuff never went away. They never changed their views. They never became enlightened or got more information and felt a different way. Yeah. A lot of them still felt the same way, but now they have some politicians who are willing to entertain these ideas, whether or not they actually believe them, they're willing to do it in order an exchange for power an exchange for influence. And so for them, the power is a zero sum game. And when they when other people have more power and opportunity, they have less. And I think that there are, again, many politicians who are willing to champion those views in exchange for their positions of power. So we actually had a Nazi rally here in Ohio just a couple of days Charming. ago. So fun. And it was a Nazi rally against drag queens and they accused all drag queens of pedophilia. And really they were all chanting about how all of the pedophiles and the grooming and all of this from the Nazis. And this is now somewhat normalized. And this is a way for them to gain power. Yeah. Right. So they find who they can step on. And so this time it was drag queens who they can step on to get to step up in their view, to get more power. And to be clear, We're talking about Nazis, like holding Nazi flags. They are very open that they are Nazis. I can't imagine. It it is terrible. And I don't think we hear enough about it and the things that they're doing. But we've also talked on the show about how limiting reproductive rights is really about control. Of course. And what worries me is, you know, I don't, well, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but worries me more about the 20 you know, attorneys general who wrote notes about not wanting Miffy being sold on their shelves is Walgreens caving and saying, okay, 20 states, we will no longer sell Miffy on the shelves. And a lot of those states, it was already illegal, but not all of them. There were many states where it was still legal. Kansas is one of them. Montana is another one. I think Alaska is another one where they basically caved to extremists. Yes. Now, to be clear, there was a huge backlash and their stock prices tanked. So then I was like, oh, yay, go markets. Uh, So then they had to walk it back. Yeah. And to be clear, we're talking about Mifepristone, the medical abortion pill. And, you know, I've gone to Walgreens before. I've gone to CVS before. But after this whole thing, I 
will make it a point not to step foot in a Walgreens. Mm -hmm. I think they underestimated how loud and how much of a minority that the people they were caving to were. And then what what you see in the stock prices and people refusing to go to Walgreens is suddenly it became very clear that the majority does not agree with that statement, Walgreens. The majority is for reproductive rights, reproductive freedom, and not for attorneys general or any politician making that decision for women. I will not shop at Walgreens. I'll tell you that. Me either. Like I literally won't. And I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. I'm just not going to go there because I, yep. I again, I, I don't have time to make a big deal out of it. This is, this is right here, the biggest conversation I've had about this, but I've made the decision personally. I just, it, and that's why that's the mistake. That is the mistake that so many people make people who don't vote because they're listening to this loud group. And they think that this, this, because they're loud, that there are more of them. That's not the case. But then, and, and you see, they're surprised when, Oh, how could Biden win? I didn't see any Biden flags. It's because we're fucking normal. (laughs) Because like, I mean, that's that's stupid. Like also, have you heard of like physics? You don't want to have a big flag on your car. It's not very good for like gas gas mileage. mileage. (laughs) Totally. I mean, so before we come to our guests, I did want to talk about the bank run that we had in Silicon Valley, which I don't know if you guys heard about the Silicon Valley bank. So it's basically like uh, from It's a Wonderful Life bank run happened, except for it <laughs> happened to I know, all the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. And they basically all tried to get their money out at the same time, just like in It's a Wonderful Life. And the FDIC had to take it over to stop it. But here's the issue. So the FDIC insures up to $250,000 in deposits. So everyone who has at least $250,000, if something were to happen, it's insured, you get that money back. Now, here's the real sticker. Uh, 95% of their deposits were over $250,000. So now you have a bunch of very wealthy people a little worried about bank regulations all of a sudden who just weren't that worried about bank regulations before this. We need to have like some sort of like alert on the podcast when we get to every week's segment of deregulation is bad for everyone. It's like an alert for But it comes up all the time because it's true. But they're okay with regulating what I can do to my body and what books my child can read. Can I just point that out? Oh my gosh. I know. You did have Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who is a badass economist, said that there will not be a bailout, right? So they have the same insurance policy we all do, 250,000, but she right now is no bailout, guys. Like you need to be paying attention to your bank and bank regulations. And some of you are the same people who argued to take away bank regulations to make sure that for example, this bank kept more money in, on hand in case something like this happened. Exactly. Well, speaking of experts and just letting people, you know, do what they are good at, do what they are trained to do. Our guest today knows all about the overlap between abortion rights and LGBTQ justice. So Elliot, thank you for joining us on the Suburban Women Problem. So great to be here. Thank you. So it sounds like you've been working for reproductive rights and LGBTQ rights for basically your whole life. What inspired you to not just fight for those causes in your free time, but to build your career around them? Yeah, no, thank you for that. I mean, frankly, I think I've been doing this for my whole life because it kind of is my whole life. You know, I'm a transgender person. I'm a bisexual person. I'm a person who can get pregnant. I grew up in the rural conservative South. So you know, I think just growing up at those intersections, it's really just always been a part of my journey. I've always known I've wanted to do this. Uh, I got really involved in campus activism in college. And here I am today doing writing and communications work for NARAL Pro-Choice America. So what, just to get right into it, what are the some of the anti-trans bills being proposed right now? And what are the real effects that those are going to have on trans kids and adults around the country? Yeah. So I think we are in a really, uh, honestly, kind of scary moment when it comes to state legislation. So uh, right now, the ACLU, one of NARAL's really close partners, is tracking nearly 400 anti-LGBTQ bills. And all of those bills impact the trans community. But of course, there's also very specific bills that target only the trans community. Of those bills, I think the two biggest buckets that we're seeing are attacks on trans health care. Uh, largely, that means denying trans children the health care they need to live their most authentic lives. And we're also seeing bans on talking about trans topics in schools that can look like 
book bans that can look like the so-called don't say gay uh, that we're seeing in places like Florida. And what these bills effectively are doing is they're just taking away the ability of trans people to exist, frankly, in public. If we're erasing their ability to get care, if we're erasing the ability to even mention the existence of trans people in schools, it's effectively trying to erase trans people from the entire conversation. And that that is pretty scary. 400 bills for a population that's anywhere from one to 5% of the American population, 400 bills. I mean, what if they put that much thought and energy into public education, into to helping, actually helping fund public education or having childcare? When they're spending time with this, they are not spending time solving the problems that absolutely do exist and affect all of us. Yes, no, absolutely. As someone who works at NARAL Pro-Choice America, I spend most of my time really diving in on bills impacting abortion access and reproductive freedom. And it's interesting coming from an LGBTQ activist background, looking at these bills, often they look like Mad Libs of one another. Mm. The ways that we're attacking healthcare in the reproductive sphere, almost identical to the way that we're seeing similar attacks on transgender healthcare. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ultimately a lot of these bills are coming from the same national organizations that are attacking both uh, realms. And we're seeing the same lawmakers at the state and federal level introducing all of these same bills. So it's really just shows how connected these movements are. I think in a lot of ways, you know, it boils down to power and control. Mm-hmm. You know, these are politicians that, recognize that when they reduce the humanity of the people who don't vote for them, if they attack their right to vote, if they attack their right to access health care, if they attack their right to access education, it's going to be easier for them to retain their power and control and their positions. And that sounds dystopian, but it's because it kind of is. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. So I got to talk to your colleague, Angela Vasquez-Drew, a couple weeks ago about the Miffy Prestone ban. And we were actually talking, so we're talking on Friday when it was supposed to be announced and we're still here and we're like, when's this, when's this going to be announced? So do you have any idea of what are they waiting for? Is there anything new going on with the ruling about this in the Texas case? Yeah. So I, you know, I can't pretend to be inside Judge Kaczmarek's head. And frankly, I'm really glad that I can. (laughs) This is probably a good thing. We don't want to go there. (laughs) However, there actually has been a really interesting update in this case that came out just uh, this past weekend. Today's Monday. This is a new story that came out yesterday that that judge in that Texas case, Matthew Kaczmarek, he sought to delay telling the public of a new hearing that's supposed to be happening on Wednesday. And that's a really sort of unprecedented moment. The fact that this is not, you know, did not become public in the same way, or he sought for it to not become public in the same way these hearings traditionally are. And, you know, like I said, I can really only speculate here. I'm not a lawyer and I'm certainly not uh, Matthew Kaczmarek himself. But what I suspect here is that he knows that we have this people power. He knows that there is this public opinion. I agree. He knows that people who are impacted by this case, which to be clear is every single one of us, Uh whether or not Uh we can get pregnant, whether or not we have a loved one who can get pregnant, it's going to impact every single person in this country. And I think that he knows that. And I think that he's still aiming to attack our most fundamental freedoms, but he also knows that we're going to fight back for that freedom. And I think that's why he's trying to hide some of these aspects of the case from the public right now. Bam, such a great point. And man, if he didn't know it, like after the whole Walgreens debacle happened, he sure knows it now in case he was trying to pretend he didn't know it. No matter how loud they are, they are not the majority. We know this. We know this. We know this. They try to get around it with gerrymandering. They try to get around it with secrecy, but they are not the majority. And if we use our voices and we use our vote, It is still, we're going to have to claw our way out of a lot of this mess, but it's absolutely possible if we put the work in. Yes. I know uh, I'm going to repeat something that I uh, heard Angela say on the fantastic episode she was featured on, but, you know, eight in 10 Americans support 
reproductive freedom, yeah. support the legal right to access abortion care. And that- We call that a majority, a very clear majority. <laughs> it's not like a technical <laughs> economist term, Amanda. Yes, I mean, to me, maybe I'm overstating it. To me, that's not just a majority, that's a consensus. Oh, yeah. Yes. You know, and no matter what these anti-choice actors are doing, no matter how they try to sneak and go behind the curtain to attack our rights and go through these backdoor bans to, you know, further attack our most fundamental freedoms, there's too many of us for them to it's just get away with It's hard to hide from eight and 10. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I love that, Ella, you've been talking about how these bills that target a certain group, they end up affecting all of us. But as someone who is part of the LGBTQ community and also works for NARAL, you have a unique perspective on the overlaps here. And we often talk about reproductive justice as an issue that affects women, uh, but that leaves trans and non-binary people out of the conversation sometimes. So why is it important to be inclusive when we talk about abortion and how can we be inclusive when we talk about abortion? Yeah, I love this question. So I'll kind of start with the why. And I think the why is easy. When we try to divide Mm -hmm. the communities that are impacted by anti-choice legislation, we're really playing into that Mm anti-choice handbook. We are giving them exactly what they want. Their goal throughout history has been to divide us by redefining us. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, what they're trying to do here is they're trying to take that eight and 10 and they're trying to split us up. Because if they can section out trans people, if they can section out people of color, they can section out any population and pit them against one another. That means we're fighting each other and we're not fighting the powers that are actually impacting us. The very loud two in 10. Yes, exactly. So I think that's exactly why we have to maintain unity here. We have to really think through who are our allies, who's on our side and We have to band together. We have to stick together in this fight. And, you know, the way to do that is simple. It's just remember that trans people are here. We're such a small part of the population. And while we've been getting more and more recognition, especially in this past decade, that doesn't change the fact that we're being attacked. And so the more we can speak up about the way anti-choice bills impact trans people, you know, if that's simply saying pregnant people, whether that's simply saying women and trans populations who can get pregnant, Mm -hmm. the exact wording, you know, no one's getting graded here. (laughs) And I try to tell people that because I think people get nervous, you know, when they're talking about trans inclusion, because they don't want to get it wrong. But it's better to get it wrong than to not get it at all, right? Mm. Even I mess up sometimes. I've misgendered myself, you know? (laughs) It, It doesn't make me a bad person and it doesn't make anyone else a bad person. We're all just here having humanity and trying and maintaining that humanity is important. I love that you give people the space, you know, for grace, um, for mistakes, because we all make mistakes when we're trying to learn and trying to be a good advocate. But I'd I'd love to hear more about how you're feeling personally. Um, You know, as you see these 400 bills, I know the work that you do, but how does it affect you personally? Mm. That's, That is the question, isn't it? You know, I mean, I'm not going to lie. There are days that feel really, really difficult. That just feel heavy. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, I'm a person who uh, worked in the LGBTQ world for years and years, talking about the different forms of violence that have impacted the trans community. And then I joined the reproductive freedom world, you know, just about a year and a half before the fall of Roe v. Wade. And that you know, can't not take a toll, right? Of course, of course, yeah. And so, you know, there are days where I just need to put on my, like, sad boy, you know, indie rock playlist Mm -hmm. and just feel some feelings about it. Yeah, yeah. But what I always try to keep myself grounded in, and I think staying grounded is so important for all of us, not just people specifically in this, but your listeners as well, just having to hear this every day, is just sort of looking for the heroes. That's something that I always... Uh, tell myself is look for those folks that are doing that good work, those organizations doing that good work, the elected officials doing that good work. Mm -hmm. And just remembering again, that we are the majority here. And even if there is a lot of power concentrated in a lot of really dark circles right now with some of these uh, folks that are pushing these bans, ultimately there's more of us than there are of them. You know, we're going to get there one way or another. I have no doubt. It might take time. It might take more time than we want, but yeah. we're going to get there. 
And in the meantime, you know, the national is a great band. And sometimes uh, you just want to listen to some really sad music and cry it out. And that is okay. <laughs> it is okay to cry sometimes. That is okay. <laughs> You're right. Yep. We need that uh, kid confirmed. All right. Elliot, it has been a pleasure talking with you. You are definitely one of the heroes along with Nayral. And I know that some of the days, I think we've all had those days where we feel like we're like one in 10. We're like, we feeling like we're one in 10, but we're eight in 10. And there are a lot of people out there. So thank you for what you do. Thank you so much, Elliot. No, and thank you both as well. Now we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have Jasmine's interview with Danica Rome. This week, we had questions for our troublemaker, Elliot, about what's going on with the abortion pill. Is Mifepristone still available? What's happening with the court case in Texas? And what will it all mean? If you want to stay in the loop, we encourage you to join us in our emergency trouble huddle on Monday, March 20th. We'll be joined by Sky Perryman, the president and CEO of Democracy Forward, and Dr. Colleen McNicholas, board-certified OBGYN and the chief medical officer of Planned Parenthood Missouri. Sky and Dr. Colleen will tell us more about what's happening with Miffy, what it means, and what we can do. You can sign up by going to redwine.blue or by clicking the link in the show notes. Our guest today is a Virginia State delegate, a journalist, and an alumna of Emerge Virginia. She's been on the cover of Time Magazine. She's the author of a memoir titled Burn the Page. And she also happens to be the first openly trans person to serve as a state representative. Danica Rome, thank you so much for joining me today on the Suburban Women Problem. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. So we talk all the time on the podcast about authenticity. People think there's a, quote, mold that they have to fit in in order to be in politics. But I know very well, and I'm sure you do, too, that that's just not true. So what has the journey of authenticity been like for you? Well, the journey for authenticity for me has basically been like 30 years of hiding my actual authentic self. You know, I didn't start therapy for my transition till I was 28. I didn't start HRT till I was 29. And I think that when you have that perspective of having to live a life afraid, when you have that experience and then you bring that into politics, that means that you're going to be in a position where you're talking to people and being real with them. Right. Because you've already been afraid. You're done being afraid at this point. And you're like, yeah, I'll just be real with you. I spent my entire career as a newspaper reporter vetting facts and holding people accountable for a living. It's not going to change just because I got an office. And so, you know, I learned from Senator Tammy Baldwin actually years ago. She told this great story about how for her being out as a lesbian and running for Congress and running for you know U.S. Senate, that a guy told her once, well, if you're willing to be honest about that with me, I guess you're going to be willing to be honest when you're in office. And I'm like, well, who's going to be more honest with you than the transgender metalhead reporter, Yugini, stepmom, vegetarian, you know, who's a lifelong <laughs> resident of the Prince William County part of Manassas, who covered the stories of our community here for more than nine years. And while doing all of that, You've seen right before your very eyes me saying, yeah, this is who I am. And, you know, let's go work on fixing Route 28 together. I never say I'm transgender, but I always say I'm transgender. And to me, it is making sure people understand that, yes, I am going to be authentically myself. And I'm going to make sure that I'm really focused on your core quality of life issues as I'm doing it. I love that. I love that. I think that oftentimes, you know, people are like, oh, if you're like, for instance, with me, oh, if you're black, you're only going to care about black issues. Or if you're a woman, you're only going to care about woman issues. And I'm like, you know, I am capable of, you know, doing more than one thing and thinking about more than one thing and caring about more than one thing at a time. And you laid that out perfectly. You can 100% fight for inclusivity and also fight for literal roundabout at intersections. Like, <laughs> And here's the thing. Black people get stuck in traffic too. Black yes. women get stuck in traffic too. Trans people <laughs> exactly. get stuck in traffic too. Trans women get stuck in traffic. <laughs> Transportation as a whole is a civil rights and civil justice, is a social justice issue. Your ability to pick your kids up from daycare 
your ability to make it to your job on time without getting fired, right. your ability to get home and actually get either to a second job to see your family or do whatever it is, is entirely reliant on sound infrastructure and making sure everything works together. You can see transportation, the very design of our roads being used to perpetuate utter racism. And if you need any example of that, look at Jackson Ward and I right. right I-95 dissected that community, split it apart. And only now, like literally this year, are we actually dealing with actually reconnecting the community again? I love that. I love your passion. And so I am curious, uh, you brought up how long you've lived in your community. You were born in Manassas, Virginia. Uh, You got elected in 2017 as a delegate in the same district that you actually grew up in. So I was also born and raised in Georgia. I didn't live in this district, but I did live in the state. Tell us, what what has it been like to spend most of your life in a district and then you get to turn around and represent the very neighbors that you've pretty much known like most of your life in the legislature. So what's interesting is because I live in a very transient community and because I grew up in the woods, I didn't always see a lot of my neighbors, right? You know, like people, when we think about the burbs, right? And this entire podcast is about, you know, suburban issues here, right? We will very much think about that cul-de-sac design where the houses are on quarterly gear lots, and they kind of all go through this like almost Stafford wives, you know, right. like sort of scenario here where you have the overhead shot. And absolutely, that's certainly part of the area here. Like, no question. That development, that post-World War II development is very much prevalent here. No question. At the same time, I was out knocking doors, you know, where sometimes you got half a mile between, you know, tar- your targeted houses. Right. And I say that because, again, this is the burbs. <laughs> people forget. You know, and there's the what people think the burbs are. And then there's what the burbs actually are. Yes, there's a lot of burbs where it's a lot of clustered housing here and businesses over there. And then there's a lot of burbs where you've got a lot of woods around a lot of houses, too. That's also a thing. And it is at the detriment of the public, I believe, to misunderstand how we think of the burbs as this lily light little pasture where it was just like, oh, because I wanted the spouse and the 2.5 kids and the white picket fence and all the other sorts of stuff. Right. Like, no, that, that that exists. There, there's some of it, but it is not the totality of my district, okay? And it is not the totality of the people who live in this district. Nope. This is a very ethnically diverse area that I represent. And if you were to spend a day with me going elementary school to elementary school, you're going to notice there's a lot more brown kids than there are white kids. For, like in the school that I grew <laughs> up in, Gwinnett. the demographic yeah. is complete, completely changed. And absolutely, suburban Atlanta, so similar to what you know we experience in suburban uh, DC, like no question. And so I, I think one of the things that we are having to redefine as democratic women representing the burbs is number one talking to our peers in uh, the suburbs and talking to other uh, other women about what does it mean to actually live here what does it mean to vote here what does it mean to want to choose to raise a child here right i would say i would suggest it's just like well the blend of people that we have here means that we have to inherently be inclusive mm-hmm. but that's the one of the unique things about being in the burbs in a you know high growth area is that you don't know where everyone's life story around you all the time. And the Prince William County I grew up in the 1980s and the 1990s is very different than the Prince William County I now represent today, even though I still live in the same zip code. I love that. I love that you mentioned how the suburbs can look very different than what people picture, because you're right. That's really what this podcast is all about. That's kind of the focus of this podcast. So uh, we're all very concerned, as everyone should be, about the recent just like absolute explosion of anti-trans legislation across the country. I know here in Georgia, they're talking about banning any type of gender affirming care for children and basically taking those choices away from parents. But it's so hard to know exactly what to do or how to help, especially for people who aren't legislators or aren't in the mix. And so could you tell us or tell our listeners more about some of the anti-trans legislation that's happening in your state and 
more importantly than what is happening, can you help us to kind of know what they can do? Sure. So this year in Virginia, there were about 12 or 13 pieces of specifically anti-trans legislation you know, that had been introduced. And that was so much more than any time. And since 2016, we had nine pieces of anti-trans legislation. And then once I won in 2017 as the first out and seated transgender state legislator in the country, I unseated the self-described chief homophobe of Virginia in doing so. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, you know, he had been in office for 26 years over 13 terms. He had authored the state's ban on marriage equality. He had authored the bathroom bill, all that sort of that sort of stuff. And he lost this suburban district, right? And what happened fundamentally at that point was you saw, I believe, in the Republican Party at that point this idea that like, oh, this might be too toxic for us to deal with. Let's focus on other things. Well, what happened is the people who were opposed to trans rights kind of regrouped and they refocused their efforts and they really wanted to start at attacking kids and be, they thought that was going to be more palpable to society. And this is not my words. This yeah. is their own. This is yeah. what they've said themselves. And with the ultimate goal of getting up to be able to attack, you know, like trans healthcare for adults, which is what you're seeing in Oklahoma, for example. But here's the thing, like, there is only so much that the opponents of trans rights are going to be able to really get electorally out of attacking us. And then you have to ask, how come I've been, how come I've earned election three times in a suburban district? If the attacks on trans people were going to be as prolific electorally and successful electorally as they thought it would be, then Michigan wouldn't be a Democratic trifecta state right now because they just put, you know, uh, they put seven digits into attacking Gretchen Whitmer and uh, the state legislative Democrats on this. Right. And the Democrats won. Mallory McMorrow is right now kind of like the poster senator. I love I guess. her, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And she's an emerge sister, by the way. And so for someone in her case to unabashedly be so supportive of LGBTQ people and talk about how she's using her own position as this like straight white Christian suburban mom. And she's used it for good. And look at all the good things their legislature is doing now. You look at this and you go, okay, there is a certain echo chamber within their party right. that really wants to hammer on anti-trans stuff. But that doesn't mean that the entire electorate is buying it. However, in the burbs though, that does mean that there are going to still be persuasion voters they're going to target with it. Right. And what they're trying to do specifically is make moms and dads be suspicious that you are coming for their children or that you're going to indoctrinate their children or that you're going to do something that's going to make life harder for their kid or you're going to make their kid trans or they're going to start questioning themselves, blah, blah, blah. But here in this district that I represent, where kids are come from all around the world, we're not scared of someone who's different from us. And not at all. In fact, I had a town hall last night and I literally had someone say, I'm just not okay with people doing this to children and they're trying to target them with pronouns and the way she was talking i was like ma'am first of all pronouns are not bullets and let's be clear we're not doing anything about those secondly we're, it's not people doing this to children it is parents caring for their children and if it were any other issue would you have a problem with the government telling you that you cannot care for your child the way you feel it is best to care for your child? And that's all parents are asking for is for you to not take away the ability for them to do what they need to do for their children. So it's not these random people coming out of the woods, grabbing children and taking them to clinics that are going to turn them trans. Like that's not what's happening, but that's like this picture they are trying to paint. And at the same time, I know for a fact, these same people will argue that you should not be able to make their child wear a mask. You should not be able to make their child do anything else because they have a right to decide. You should not be able to make their child read a book about black history. I mean, literally, they don't want you to do anything else, but they definitely want to tell parents what they can do for their children medically. And that is the issue that I've had is they they deal in fear, but then there's people in the room that are also like, hey, I'm that parent that says, 
I don't want the government stepping in and telling me what I can't do. Also, we have doctors saying, I'm a doctor. I am trained. I went to medical school and I paid a lot of money to do it. I know what I'm doing. Stop trying to tell me how to do my job. So that is (laughs) something that I've seen right here in Georgia. So you and I are definitely on the same page when it comes to these issues. And I think that is where Republicans lose a lot of people in the suburbs because they are in their echo chamber and they are not actually having real conversations with the people who live here that are like, hey, you know, we're not as scared of each other as you're trying to make us seem. Yeah. At what point in the last four years did you have parents when you were out knocking on doors saying, you know, Representative Clark, the thing I need the most that's going to make my life better is for you to make life more miserable for trans kids. That's the thing that I'm casting my vote on. (laughs) No one ever has done that. Yes. No, no. It's (laughs) it's just that's not reality. Right. And at the same time, if you're looking for ideological consistency, politics and state legislatures are not the best place to go (laughs) looking when you're dealing (laughs) with the same (laughs) who are trying to tell you of like, hey, you're taking away my freedom and my rights and whatever. And you're like, oh, but this parent is affirming of their trans kid. Now we're going to take that kid away from that parent because that's child abuse and whatever. And those books away from those parents and everything. Yeah, it's it's crazy. What, What I'm looking at right now as I'm thinking about this is a conversation I had with one of my Republican colleagues who was going to put in a anti-trans medical bill, but then didn't in part because that member has a son who's friends with a trans boy. Oh, wow. And getting to know that kid was really eye-opening for that legislator. And so what's so sad is that for way too many politicians, they have to know someone in their personal life before the issue matters to them and that's worth fighting for like you saw that with senator rob portman in in uh, ohio oh my son came out yeah i gotta start protecting gay people now it's like you had a lot gay constituents exactly long very long time it shouldn't have taken that and but and at the same time i also think that a lot for a lot of white legislators that until something happens to that black friend who they have you know oh i have black friends you know such right until they see that and it's i had no idea right that was a thing i didn't know these types of things happened yes This has been such a great conversation, Danica. Like I really, uh, we could probably keep going like for a really long time, especially on this subject, because you're right. The inconsistency is jarring. It's extremely aggravating. But uh, before we go, I do want to ask you a few rapid fire questions. Is that okay? Absolutely. All right. Question number one. What piece of legislation are you most proud of passing? Uh, I'm going to give you two things. That, uh, uh, number one is it took me five years of fighting to um, basically get health insurers for in the way the final version of the bill was written. And I'm sure you've you, you've gone through this where there's what you introduced and then there's what came out. Yes. <laughs> the final version is large private employers now have to include in their health insurance plans coverage for state-of-the-art prosthetic devices for amputees that's something i fought for all five years and battle and battle and battle with this and something i will expand more on um, in future years as well and then another one though is my bill to ban school meal debt shaming and school meal debt uh well school meal debt i should say as as well but yeah (laughs) yeah we of my 41 bills that we've passed through the general assembly uh 13 of them deal with feeding hungry kids and so i'm really proud about that i love it All right. So people might be surprised to hear that you were in a metal band for over a decade. So what is it about metal music that speaks to you? It is intensity. It is audio rebellion. It is complex. It can be sometimes very easy to play, sometimes very hard to play. But there's so much range and there's so much intensity. And it's done in a way that for me, it hits my mind and it hits my body in a way that just fundamentally different from other types of music and that there's so much different type of of metal so speaking of music what song always makes you want to hit the dance floor (laughs) um for non-metal my guilt uh song absolutely was uh blow by kesha i love Uh, it like that's that was definitely a that when I when I was in my gay clubbing days, uh, so basically like I would get all dolled up. That was my guilty pleasure song, and I liked uh, probably like Judas from Lady Gaga as far as like those 
dance floor songs go. I love it. All right. Uh, one last question. What advice do you wish you could give to your younger self? It's going to hurt. It's going to suck. It's okay. I wish I had courage at that time to just tell people, yeah, this is who I am. And you know what? Love me, hate me, however you feel about it. This is who I am and this is who I'm going to be. I wish I had that courage. And now I get to be the person who other people look at and says, well, if Danica can do it, so can I. I love that. I truly, that is great advice. I love that. And I think that is the perfect end to our rapid fire questions. So uh, just to uh, finish it off, where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Sure. So if you want to follow me day to day, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at PWC Danica. It's spelled D-A-N-I-C-A. I'm also on Facebook. Um, you can find Danica Rome, Virginia Delegate. And otherwise, you can always find me down in Richmond You know when we're in session and uh, back here in Manassas. So you always feel free when you're in Western Prince William. Reach out to me. I'd be happy to meet you over at uh, Tony's New York Pizza or Yorkshire Restaurant or someplace. And uh, yeah, we'll go chat. Awesome. Well, this was so great. Thank you so much for joining us on the Suburban Women Problem. Thank you so much, Representative Clark yourself. I really, really appreciate you taking the time out and thank you for your kindness. Welcome back, everyone. Jasmine, I am so glad you got to talk with Danica. I actually got to meet her. She is from my former county, Prince William County, Virginia, and just such a positive person. And um, I'm glad I got to meet her, but really great to hear from her. Yeah, she has really good energy. Like she, yes, and she knows her stuff. Like she really knows her stuff. Isn't that refreshing (laughs) when you like know how to do your job instead of just go for like talking points on Fox? I think that one of the things that she said that I love the most was when she was like, hey, guess what? Traffic affects women. Traffic affects trans people. Traffic affects pretty much everyone. So yeah, I can actually care about trans issues and also care about traffic because guess what? Traffic is a trans issue. (laughs) It's literally everyone's issue. That is true. So now we will transition to the toast to joy. This is a point in the podcast where we talk about something great and happy and exciting or something that we want to celebrate. Yes. Celebration. All right. So Rachel, let's start with you. So my toast of joy this week is we had a busy weekend, but I'm so glad that we made time, even when we lost an hour of sleep, to go to uh, the upper school musical at my daughter's new school. It was a wonderful performance and I won't give it away. So people can't Google where my daughter's going to school, but I will say the students really put it together and it was very, very impressive, but it was a timely subject. And I think when you present something in um, the performing arts, it's a different way of starting a conversation. And I just, I, I love to see the kids, not only how proud of themselves they were and their accomplishment and, and displaying their talent, which was great, but that they're not afraid to take on those subjects, which I mean, frankly, I think we know is the case, but uh, I like to see them starting at a young age and the parents, in the community also not being afraid uh, to, to do that also. So my toast to joy is those high school students. And um, as we often discuss on the pod of how the young people really give us hope that they are not buying into all this hate and division and they're just going to go live their lives and they're not going to let it control their you know, decision cycle, get, get to be part of their decision cycle. They're going to do what they think is best. And I love that. So yeah, it was wonderful. How about you, Amanda? What's yours? Oh man, the kids are all right. Um, oh yeah, my gosh. Yeah, I actually I have like so many things I was thinking about for the toast of joy today. Yay! Uh, so my daughter did a pine, my daughters, both of them did a Pinewood Derby for Girl Scouts, which they had super, a lot of fun with, which was so fun. So it was actually my my stepdad and then my husband Casey took them to it and it was so cute. But actually my toast of joy is going to be about an organization called 100 Women Strong Ohio. I don't know if you guys have heard them. So it's actually in a number of different states. It's called 100 Women Strong. And basically it's just a bunch of women come together 
and we each donate. So I think it varies by organization, but about a hundred to $200 and we pool our resources. And then what we do is we uh, pick different organizations to give the money to. So we got to hear from an organization um, run by a mother who is trying to buy sensors for kids with epilepsy to uh, notify a caregiver if they are um, having a seizure. And so that's actually who won. And it was just amazing to hear about all the organizations. And uh, so the three organizations, all three got money, but it's a great place where you see women coming together and finding out like what our community actually needs and doing something about it. And so it's very uh, cool organization to be a part of. And it was a lot of fun. So my toast of joy is to 100 women strong. Jasmine, what is your toast of joy? So my toast to joy and last week was really rough for me, you guys. Like it was a really tough week. Um, oh, no. a, a lot of things happened. One of those things being we lost one of our colleagues oh, in the house sorry. and uh, she sat right behind me in the chamber and uh, it was really tough. It was really tough on me. But outside of that, uh, I was having this really rough week and then I get home one day and there's this package on my front door. And uh, I was picking Jada up for uh, basketball practice and she comes out of the front door. She sees the package, kind of picks it up and she's like, oh, I don't know what this is. And so she brings it into the car. Guys, it was Junior's Cheesecake from New York. Oh, yes. And it came from leader Hakeem Jeffries, who right here on this podcast, he promised me that he would get me some Junior's Cheesecake. And I saw him uh, prior, uh, a weekend prior, and I kind of reminded him in jest. I was like, oh, yeah, by the way, I still haven't forgotten that time you promised me Junior's Cheesecake. And lo and behold, a few days later, I had Junior's Cheesecake at my door. Oh, what a class act. That's so cool. It was delicious, but I'm impressed that he kept his promise. And uh, so my toast to joy is to Leader Jeffries and also to Delicious Junior's cheesecake from New York. Oh, that's awesome. Now I want cheesecake. (laughs) (laughs) That is quite a toast to joy. All right. So thanks so much to everyone for joining us today. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with someone you know, and we'll see you next week on another episode of the Suburban Women Problem. The Suburban Women Problem was created by Red, Wine, and Blue. Our producer and editor is Amy Thorstenson, and our project manager is Lindsay Quist. Videos by Abigail Martin and Ashley Hufford. For more information about upcoming events and trainings, or to learn more about Red Wine and Blue, follow us on social media or at www.redwine.blue.